Amen. So good to see all of you here today. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the book of Galatians. This morning we're going to begin a study through this wonderful epistle. I'm so glad we get to do this together, a, a book that is so good at defining the gospel for us and showing us the threat of something that I think is so prevalent that can really mess us up, which is the threat of legalism. We can't let any of our own efforts define anything of our relationship with Jesus. It is Jesus who saves us. He transforms us. He's the one that empowers us to live for his glory. And all of this is due to his work of grace in us and through us. We're going to look at that as we study this incredible book together. But as we dig into Galatians, and this morning we're going to be looking at the opening five verses. Today's just a, a, a special day. I'm so glad that Charles prayed for our missions team this morning, be lifting them up in Salt Lake City, Utah, be praying for what God is doing in them and through them. They'll return home to us tomorrow, be praying for Kendall Scott, she'll be on her way to Boyce College, leaving, I think, this afternoon, and I was just thinking of Kendall praying for her as I know that route. I have driven it so many times when you pass through Chattanooga and you have to go over this awful mountain and down on the other side. And, and after you finally make it through, you get to Murfreesboro. That's where you like to eat. So, Kendall, I hope you get there safely and pull off there and get your gas. Find a good place to um, stop and get your, get your fix there and then just keep going. You're about 170 miles from Louisville at that point. And I know that really, really well. But we'll be praying for Kendall while she drives up there. She only has had her license for 14 minutes. And uh, we just need to pray for her as she is driving on her way to Louisville today and remembering her. And just be praying for our church. Just as you saw the video, we're still praying and we're in the middle of this waiting and back and forth about this memorandum of understanding that, that Ed so rightly acknowledged in that video. Be praying for us. Be praying for our unity. And I know that there's nothing better for the unity of the church than to worship together, especially around the pure doctrine of his word. And that's what we're going to look at today in the book of Galatians I remember the day that I proposed marriage to Allie, and I'll, I'll remember it. I remember it very vividly. Um, I, I'll, I'll remember waking up that morning. Now I set my alarm for five o'clock a.m. But can I tell you, I did not need to set the alarm that day. I woke up on my own, and I woke up because I knew that while our dinner reservations were at a restaurant at six o'clock that night, I had a whole lot of things I had to get done. Now. Of course, I'd already gotten the wedding ring, and it was the, the engagement ring, and it was burning a hole in my pocket. I had to give it to her. Um, but I had a lot of things that I wanted to set up for, for when I finally proposed marriage that evening. I had the reservations already taken care of. I had the flowers picked out. There were some things that I needed to get put together to set up in the front of Alumni Chapel because I had the whole plan in my mind all laid out, and I had to take care of all those details and get it all worked out. And so that when that moment came that I took the blindfold off after our dinner and she showed up, I just wanted to be just like I had envisioned it to be. But something else that I had to get up and do that morning, I'll just be honest, I wanted to rehearse. I didn't want to blow it. Now, I trusted that in the event that I mixed up my words or flubbed it up when I got down on the knee, that she would already have known my heart and that wouldn't have been a deal breaker. At least I hope that's true. But I rehearsed it because... I knew that was just an important moment, and in that moment, I just wanted to have my act together. I didn't want to mess it up. You know, what I'm talking about, really, 
is something in sporting terms that we talk about delivering in the clutch. And if you've ever been in a situation that you have a key exam that is important for your future, that you not just pass, but that you do well, or if you've ever um, had to sit at a free throw line with two seconds left on the clock and your team down by two, and you've got to sink both of them for the team to win, or maybe it is that you remember what it was like to propose marriage. You did not want to mess that up. There are certain times in life that we prepare well because we don't want our efforts to fall short. We want to get things right. So getting things right is the title for this new sermon series that we're going to start today as we walk through the book of Galatians. In the 30 years that spanned the life of the Apostle Paul from his Damascus Road experience in which Christ revealed himself and all of his glory to Paul to the time at the end of his life when he was in a Roman jail cell awaiting his execution for being a believer The entire 30 years of his life was lived with one soul, one main driving emphasis and purpose. He was an ambassador of Jesus. His purpose for living was to be faithful to all of the methods and all of the message and the character of the one who saved him and sent him. And all of his training and all of his energy was spent fulfilling the plan that God had for his life. These 30 years of ministry, as you read about them in the book of Acts, they are defined by three distinct missionary journeys, the first of which took him through the regions of Galatia, Cilicia, and the island of Cyprus, and even into Lycia. And Paul would travel from region to region. He would plant a church, and then after planting a church in a city, he would then circle back to that church by giving them a letter filled with personalized an important doctrine and instruction so he could continue to lead in that church. And the letter to the churches of Galatia is the earliest, I believe, of all of Pauline, of Paul's letters, of all the Pauline letters. And he wrote this letter around the year eighty forty eight. It was right before the Jerusalem Council convened that we read about in the book of Acts chapter 15. And this particular letter It was intended to be given to the churches that Paul and Barnabas had started in the region of Galatia, namely in the cities of Pisidia, Antioch, in Iconium, in Derbe, and in Lystra. And you can read all about Paul's ministry in those cities as you read of them as they're recorded for us by the good Dr. Luke in Acts 13 and 14. But this morning, as we begin to dig our way into this, which I believe is Paul's earliest written letter, the further we progress into it, the more we're going to unpack Paul's motivation for writing this book. These churches, they're facing a time of great peril. False teachers called Judaizers had caused a great disturbance within the ranks of these congregations. And these false teachers would speak often about Jesus. They wouldn't shy away from what Christ accomplished on the cross. But for them, coming to Christ alone by faith alone was not enough. Because along with believing that Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection was necessary for salvation, they taught a false gospel that required a person 
to follow Jewish law and even go as far as be circumcised, as if that was a requirement to be right with God. So to solidify their stronghold within the hearts and the lives of these churches in this region of Galatia, this sect of false teachers, they mounted a full-on attack against the authority and against the authenticity of Paul. Questions like, who is this Paul anyway? They would scornfully ask. Why does he call himself an apostle? He wasn't one of the original 12. In essence, what they continually did to undermine Paul was to accuse him of being a self-imposed imposter or self-appointed imposter. So Paul begins this letter the way he begins all of his letters with a customary salutation. And brilliantly, these opening words help us understand the message that he's going to deliver throughout the remainder of the letter. In these words I'm about to read, you will find within them a greeting. But as much as a greeting of who Paul is and to whom he is writing, what you will find is an even better greeting. It is a greeting of God's grace. We're going to see in this letter that it is essential to get the gospel right. And if we're going to get the gospel right, church, at the heart of the gospel is a correct understanding of grace. Read these opening verses of Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not for men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. When you think about these verses, I want you to remember this main teaching that you'll find in these five verses. The grace that is at the heart of the gospel is as personal as it is glorious. We're going to see this in these verses. And you'll find it right here as we open up verse 1, as it begins by explaining God's grace, and it tells us about God's grace, that God's grace transforms us. Paul begins this letter. You might not even realize it until you study it closely. By taking his sword and thrusting it into the heart of these false teachers' argument. And he does this by using his name. We know from Paul's name, which was originally Saul, that his name was used 15 times in Acts 7 through 15. It was used, he was called Paul for most of his pre-Christian life. Back then, he went by his given name, which was Saul, the very name that Jesus used when he called him out on the road of Damascus. And his name Saul was likely 
The fact, he was likely named Saul because he was named after Israel's first and most famous, or famous first king, not most famous king, that'd be David, but first king, which was Saul. And this was the name that even Jesus used when he called out to Saul, when he became a believer. But after being sent by the church at Antioch on his first missionary journey, he came to be known primarily not by his Hebrew name, which was Saul, but instead by his Greek name, which was Paul. And while Saul was a name that referenced the first king, remember the Benjamite, King Saul, whose stature was head and shoulders above everyone around him? Not his Greek name, Paul. They might sound alike, but they're totally different. His name literally meant small. Not large, but small. What a shift. King Saul, a remarkable Benjamite. But then you have Paul, a man who we know from the reports of extra-biblical accounts that he was a man of small and unimpressive stature. When Paul's opponents would come at him, they would poke fun at him and claim that his small looks were probably consistent with his diminutive name. Though Paul might have been small, this small man, as you read of his life, was never afraid of suffering. And others would impress you with their eloquent speech, but it was Paul's simple yet profound God-given words that would rattle hearts like the peal of heaven's thunder. It doesn't take great stature, apparently, to turn the world upside down. What it takes is a fully committed, real apostle. Paul says that's who he is, an apostle. His verse 1 continues. God is the one who commissioned Paul and who entrusted to him this sacred deposit of the gospel. So this appointment was made not by man, as the scripture says, or through man, but he was an apostle and this appointment came directly from God. The name apostle literally means to be an ambassador, a word that means to be sent in the service of another. And in the New Testament, that word apostle, it's used in two primary ways. It's used broadly and it's used narrowly. Broadly, you'll find that word used of some men like Barnabas, who's called an apostle in Acts 14, verse 14. Epaphroditus, who's a great man in the book of Philippians, and Philippians Chapter 4, even Epaphroditus is called an apostle in a broad sense. You've got some guys that you might not even know a lot about. Men by the name of Andronicus and Junius, which happened to be my grandfather's first name. That's where he was named after. You don't know a whole lot about Andronicus, and you don't know a lot about Junius. These are two relatively unknown faithful believers, but in Romans 16, they are also called apostles. That's not the way that Paul uses this word, though when you come to its understanding in the book of Galatians. It's not used broadly, it's used in a different way. The term here is used the way that Jesus used it. When he looked at those 12 men that he declared to be his disciples, and in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, we read that Jesus is the one who called them apostles. When you think of the apostles who Jesus called out, that Paul is identifying himself to be one with, you think about the highest order and rank of those who are within the church. 
When you think about what we have here, it's a continuation of salvation history from the old covenant to the new. It's all brought together, even in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 14, is on the walls of the new Jerusalem, you have written the names of all the tribes of Israel, but along with their tribe names, you also find written on them the 12 names of Jesus' 12 apostles. So as these false teachers were denouncing Paul's authority and his authenticity, it was not any gathering of men or any one particular powerful leader who declared Paul to be an apostle. It was Jesus Christ and God the Father who, was, who raised Jesus from the dead. So when you think about all this, how does it apply to you? How does it apply to me? None of us are Paul. None of us are called to be a, the kind of apostle that is of the highest appointed order of the church. But that is the transformative grace work that God did in Paul's life, and God does that same kind of transformative grace work in our lives too. This grace completely arrested the apostle Paul in the same undeserved favor that God arrests us with also. And when you think about the way that this grace transforms our lives, the way it transformed the life of the Apostle Paul who considered everything before Jesus rubbish compared to knowing Christ, this grace is also meant to be understood relationally. That's why when you encounter the grace of God, it does not only transform you, but it unites you. Grace transforms us and grace unites us. The plan of God the Father to lavish humanity with unmerited grace and the unmerited grace giving that we find that the Father has given us through Christ, this isn't something that was just pushed down the chain of command from the Father to the less ranking Son. I don't want you to ever think of Jesus as being of inferior rank to the Father. There is nothing inferior about Jesus. Timothy George accurately writes while explaining Jesus' co-equal place with the Father that Christ transcends the bounds of all human categories. The God-man who came into the very thick of human existence, an existence that can be just as beautiful at times as it can also be frightening, this Jesus freely came down to earth to accomplish the Father's redemption plan. And there is no distinction, writes the accurate and faithful Ambassador Paul, between the Son and the Father. The Son and the Father of their, are of their own persons, but at the same time, they are of the same essence and completely of the same eternal quality. And in the unity that the Father and the Son fully and completely share, Paul sees a reflection of the same unity in the relationship that he shares with his fellow disciples. So he writes of this. In verse 2, these are the brothers that he's talking about that are with him. The fellowship that Paul serves is a fortress of protection for him. This fellowship of brothers are that which God has given him to stand against the injurious and malevolent um, false teachers that are everywhere. It is a diamond-hard bond of love that Paul shares with these brothers who are with him. and That's why he calls them brothers. 
And this brotherhood is then extended not just to the unnamed inner circle who have been with him that we read about in verse 2, but then as we continue in our text, it's also extended to the brotherhood and the sisterhood that you find in the churches of Galatia. And that word church, you'll find it, ecclesia in the Greek, it's used in two primary different senses. Sometimes it's used of the company of all who are redeemed, all of those who call upon Christ as Savior and Lord, all who have put their faith and their hope in Him, and all of this crosses across the boundaries of space and time. This is the universal church. It's what it means in Acts 20 when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he writes of the church of God that Jesus purchased with His own blood. It's the kind of church, it's the church that he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. When he talks about the glory that the church possesses, both now and through all generations. That's one of the ways the New Testament writes about the church. But here, Paul uses the word in its more common expression, referring to a local congregation of baptized believers who meet regularly for worship and for witness. So when I think about the church, the way that Paul uses it here, it reminds me to pray not just for our church, but for other churches in our community. Churches like the Covenant Methodist Church right down the road, and David Moore, their pastor, who we deeply love. It makes me think about uh, the Square Church that we care so much for as I, as I pray for them, and I think about that church. Phil Manginelli is one of the best pastors I know. I think about Oakdale Church right down the way, and Brian Downing, who pastors that congregation. These are all the church. We are the church. And it is right for us to call them the church, to say we are the church, but it is also right to distinguish that we're a different church from them. So there are distinct churches, but at the same time, we're all churches. But as we study this letter, what we're going to see quickly, though, after referencing the church, Paul's tone in the book of Galatians is about to change dramatically. He's going to go from being embracing and very kind to where he's going to speak in a, with a tenseness. He gets very terse and corrective in this letter. You don't read in the book of Galatians after chapter 1, verse 5, some of the same compliments that you read Paul use like he uses for the church of Philippi. When he thanks God for their partnership and with every remembrance of them, he speaks of his joy he doesn't compliment him like he compliments his brothers and sisters in Colossae, who he calls the holy and faithful brothers. Paul doesn't say those things to this church. But even though his tone is going to become tense, don't ever think that they are anything other than Paul's true and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul loves them. He is committed to going the distance with them. And they are always included in Paul's circle of commitment because that is the effect of true grace. It transforms us and it unites us. But there's yet another beautiful effect that you receive in these verses because God's grace also delivers us. The Father's plan and the Son's work they grant to us a succinct summation of the Christian faith. 
verse 3 holds within it all that we need, as Peter writes, for life and godliness. When we get the gospel right, God lavishes us with grace and with peace. I just want to start by thinking about grace. I'll always remember as a student in college when reading the works of John Piper and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Jerry Bridges. And then the time that I spent as a college student in the book of Galatians. I remember being completely blown away by the unreachable depth of God's grace. A fitting definition for grace is this. You can write this in your margin. It's God's unmerited goodwill freely given to every believer who depends on the finished work of Christ for salvation. Let me read that again. God's grace is God's unmerited goodwill freely given to every believer who depends on the furnished work of Christ for salvation. It's a really good definition. But the longer that I have been a believer, and the more that I've considered the importance of God's grace in my own life, the more I've realized, while that's a good definition, that's not all of it. You know, when I accepted that definition and I started to walk in that for a long time, it's almost as if I accepted that grace was some kind of impersonable force that sustains my standing with God and it empowers my living for his glory. It's taken me a while to understand that there is nothing more personal than God's unmerited favor. What unlocks unlocks grace's fullness for me is not just that it is a life-changing concept, but it is a life-changing relationship. You can't even think about grace without understanding how it is fully personified by Jesus himself. And when you understand grace, as Paul says, you're given not just grace, but also peace. Peace is living in a state of wholeness and freedom that is only discovered in relationship with Jesus. So you won't find that peace anywhere else. You'll only find it in him. So I just want to ask you a question this morning. Has this kind of understanding of thinking and living, if you're really honest with yourself, has it evaded you? Have you ever entered into a relationship with a transformative united, unbreakable fellowship with Jesus, who's not just the author of grace, but is the unceasing giver of grace any time and every time we need it? Have you ever stopped looking for contentment everywhere else, trying to find it in your job, trying to find it in your friendships, trying to find it in your parenting, or maybe even in your marriage? And then had to settle on the fact 
While you're looking for it in all these places, you're still left vacuous and empty because true peace, living in a state of wholeness and freedom, is something that can only be found for you as you live every day in growing, abiding, faithful relationship with Christ. Verses four and five give us three affirmations of what the saving work of Jesus does. First, read it in verse four. Jesus is the only one who gave of himself or who sacrificed of himself for your sins. This is the reason why Christ came. It is why he left the perfection of heaven to be rejected and to suffer. And when you think about Jesus on the cross, he was no victim. He gave of himself. The implication is he voluntarily sacrificed himself because he was the only one perfect enough and priceless enough to pay the penalty for our sin. And second, Jesus rescues us, the text says, from this present evil age. Allie and I were just talking yesterday after she and Paige came home from Rabbit Room's portrayal of of Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place. There's a line in that portrayal that one of the characters speaks that is profoundly helpful. It reminds you, no matter how hard things might appear, how tough it can be, Tony, to see your daughter go off to college. How hard it is to face the travail and the challenges when we feel awful as I am praying for so many right now that are in unbelievable pain. Others who are caring for and nursing for their spouses who are losing their very remembrances of who they are. As you go through the challenges of life, we need to always remember that we live in a period of time that in comparison to eternity is like the distance between the flashing of the lightning and the thunder clapping and the clapping of the thunder. That the flash of the lightning happened at the resurrection. The clapping of the thunder, which if you listen just for a moment after you see the lightning as it flashes, it's only a few seconds away. And that, in comparison to eternity, is how long we have as we make our ways through. And here's the joy and the privilege of the gospel, that thanks to the grace of God, it's transformative work in your life. Thanks to what it does and its power, it rescues you from this evil age. As we await the day for Christ's return, as we await the day that he makes the new heavens and the new earth, as we await the days in a book that our girls, my girls have been reading that it says, when everything sad is made untrue. We don't have to remain shackled and fearful and miserable and imprisoned because we have been rescued from the wickedness and the destruction of this present age. And that is a certain hope for every believer. Thanks to the finished work of Jesus and what he's done and given us his grace. And all of this happens because Christ has given of himself freely. And the unconquerable and eternal love of the Father, who, as it says at the end of verse 4, 
works all things together according to his perfect and sovereign will, the third affirmation of grace. That's why you're delivered. So what is your response? What is my response to a Jesus who gave himself voluntarily for our sins, who rescues us from this present evil age, who fulfills the plan of the Father for all of eternity, which, by the way, has not ever been their plan B. It's always been plan A, the eternal plan of the Father, the sovereign one. How do we respond to this grace? Let me tell you what you don't do. You don't then just decide, well, i got to work harder. Because if that's your conclusion, that's why we need the book of Galatians. We don't work in our own power as if Jesus saves us and rescues us and then leaves it up to us to pull ourselves up and figure out how to work hard enough and do the rest of the way. And we don't go beyond that which God has defined and try to live our lives according to even more rules. As we read through the book of Galatians, this book directly confronts a Christian who is bound in the shackles of his own legalism. And you don't just try to get out there and do, start doing a lot of nice things. How many of you noticed this morning Psalm 1 was what we read in our Bible reading plan. If you didn't know that, I'm not going to tell you what that says. You know. But as I say those things, please hear me. So many times we think, oh, if I'm going to be faithful to Jesus has done so much, I've just got to work so hard. I've got to make sure I'm reading my Bible every day. I've got to check off the list, all the praying that I need to do. I need to make sure that my worship attendance is blameless, that I'm always here every week no matter what, and do and do and do. I need to give myself to doing all of these things in my own strength and in my own might so that somehow, here's the motivation, I can earn God's favor. What we're going to learn in Galatians is that the grace and the peace of the gospel has nothing to do with my performance and your performance at all, it has everything to do with his performance and what he's done for us. So then how do we respond? Well, that's why we have verse 5. Because this greeting laced with the grace of God is filled in verse 5 with praise when you contemplate who God is and what he's done, when you realize that God's pleasure in you is not dependent upon your pursuit of him, but it has everything to do with his pursuit of you. When all of those things come to bear in your heart and in your life and you see the glory and the magnificence and the greatness of Jesus, you know what happens? All you want to do is surrender to a God who is this great. All you want to do is obey a Jesus who gave himself freely and voluntarily because he loves you. 
all you want to do is grow in your holiness to become more and more like him because you know that this is your way of living your life, not to earn his favor, but because you're so thankful that you have his favor. All you do is live your life for his worship. You don't try to earn it. It's already finished. It's completely settled. You can rest from that. All of your life is lived with the controlling motivation of overwhelming thanksgiving for all that he's done. That's how you live when you get the gospel right. So I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. Because before I do anything else, I want to address that there might be some people in this room that have heard so much about the finished work of Jesus all of your life, and it's never become clear in your mind that there is nothing about this endeavor of Christianity that has anything to do with your effort. And when it comes to your thinking about Jesus, it has always been in your mind, Jesus plus something. And for the first time, you're realizing that the free gift of God that we find in His grace is something that He has accomplished in full measure, that you bring nothing to the equation. All you can do is receive this free gift by trusting Him as Savior and Lord. And if you've never come to the place in your life that you have surrendered to the finished, completed work of Jesus, I want to ask you to stop trying to earn your way into heaven because one day you're going to meet him and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. It has everything to do with you accepting the finished work of Christ in your life, confessing that he is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead so that you can be saved. If you've never come to that place in your life that you've understood the reason for your brokenness is because of your sin and the only way that your sin can be forgiven is for you to trust Jesus to do it all for you, to forgive you in full. Won't you today put all of your hope and your trust and put it in Him? Stop depending upon your own works or your own ability to pick yourself up and try harder. It has nothing to do with those things. It's about yielding completely to a risen Christ. Right now, won't you just receive Christ? Say, Father, I'm so sorry. I have sinned in a way that I don't deserve heaven. I deserve to spend forever separated from you in hell. But I believe that you died on the cross for me and you were raised from the dead for me. And as best as I know how, I just want to turn to you. I just want to surrender to you. I want you to be my Lord, and I want to live out the rest of my days in never-ending thanksgiving for what you have done in your finished work of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the rest of us, if we're not careful, we can stray from his word, we can fall into ruts of legalism, we can think we're doing something when he's done it all. 
So let's just look at this text. Let's get ready for the book of Galatians. Let's be ready to receive over the next several weeks the fullness of the grace of God as we see it laid out for us and what Paul is going to give us. I just invite you just to ready your heart for what God's going to do in our church in the next several weeks. Let's all stand up together as we sing. And if you want to be a part of a church committed to preaching the gospel, the right gospel, if you want to come forward and tell me that, yes, I need to know what it is to be a Christian. I'm tired of trying to do what Jesus has already done. Whatever the Lord's laid on your heart, won't you just respond right now? Let's sing together.